Well, I wanted to start by saying Dobre dien, comrade. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to get someone from the crew to translate for me because I don't know any Russian. Very suspicious. Very suspicious indeed. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, w- um, all right. <laughs> comrade. Well, all right. Well, hold on, me- hold on. I'll blend in in a moment. Chris is taking a big sip of a drink right now, so... <laughs> it's a white Russian. Hey, that's that's quite fitting for our discussion tonight. Well, let me just say welcome to the Dadlit Podcast. I'm Connor. What's up, dads? I'm joined by my co-host, Chris. Comrade Chris. Tonight's subject is The Hunt for Red October by Tom Clancy, a book we've talked about doing for quite some time. So this is... Since the beginning, since the very beginning. This was like idea number one. We mentioned it last episode that like when we discussed the checklist or we we discussed what is Dadlit, Connor pitched it to me as if it has a, a submarine and a helicopter, it's Dadlit. And this has that in spades. Yeah, it's got... It's got so many goddamn submarines and multiple helicopters and mm-hmm. airplanes. I think the only thing it doesn't really have is a train. I don't think there's a train in this. I, I, I'm i going to... I'm like racking my brain right now because I feel like there could be and we're just forgetting. There like are taxi cabs. Uh, there's a lot of guns. There's some smoking. We'll, we'll get to the checklist items later. But yeah, oh, yeah. It, it it is... So far, the most dad lit book that we've we've done. I was thinking about it this morning, and I would call this dad lit incarnate. Ooh. Like it is you know, a big. We'll get to this later too. You know, with the checklist. So are you like saying Christelle. if I do a summoning circle and lay out some white sneakers, some coffee, some aviators, a battleship hat, and do a ritual that instead of summoning forth a dad or a dad lit author, it'll just be the book of Hunt for Red October. Yes. In fact, actually, I would say that in, in a in a similar ceremony, you might gather all those things and light some candles in your grimoire, your book of incantation uh, would just, we'll just be, be that. And you would just read, you know, three pages about the you'd, threading you'd of a like screw the, the, in a nuclear appendi- reactor. <laughs> yeah, you'd read like the appendices of the book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The acknowledgments page. <laughs> but I was going to say, this whole book is is technological descriptions, which is one oh of the dad checklist items. It's ridiculous, the amount of it. I Okay, if you know a person in your everyday life, and I guarantee that you do, and I, listeners, I guarantee you know someone like this, someone that watches a movie or reads a book and goes, well, that's not likely because someone would have talked. Or, hey, but what about this technology that exists? So that's not realistic. Or, hey, how come they didn't do this because they have that capability? Tom Clancy has thought of it, and he's thought three moves ahead of you and has answers for all of it. Every little detail. Hey, how come someone didn't talk? Well, hey, guess what? We're going to have three chapters of some sort of weird taxicab conversation between people that sets up a scene for later on that's going to set up why the information doesn't get through or in a certain way or gets discarded or because someone gets manipulated. So like every single thing, every technological detail, every bit of uh, technology that you may or may not know about is addressed. He covers all his boring bases. It seems like he has a mind for covert operation work. Like this, I have a fun fact for that later that you're going to find very amusing. Okay, well, let me talk a little bit about just some you know high-level facts about Tom Clancy and the history of this book. So Tom Clancy, the author, was born in 1947. 
He was a uh, Jesuit educated. Uh, he was an English major at Loyola University. He was a Boy Scout, like someone else I know. Hey. Um, <laughs> it's the, I, see, I see, to me, Boy Scout and Eagle Scout means strong, moral, and ethical character. So it, it doesn't surprise me. I have someone else that you'll love to hear about then. Okay, okay. So he was a Boy Scout. He was an ROTC cadet in college. But when he finished uh, college, he was too nearsighted to, to be accepted into any military branch. I'm sure there's a, like a more biographical work about him that's a little bit more in depth, but that seems so tragic to me, given how like enthusiastic he is about this material. Like he kind of reminds me of a character in the book, uh, Skip Taylor. Yes. But I'll get to that later. Um, I, so I do feel like that Skip Taylor's a little bit of an like a author insert. It's weird. oh yeah, oh, and yeah. I didn't even know any any of the information you just told me, but now it all makes sense. So um, he, yeah, he also. He, that's tragic in that if he existed today, we have technology that would fix that pretty quickly. You just get some LASIK, done, you're good to go. Yeah, yeah, and he would have probably been like a submarine commander or something. You know, he would have been like a on the with his attention to detail, he'd be a Jonesy. Yeah. Oh well, yeah, he would have. Um, so, anyways, he he ended up working as an insurance agent, and he wrote his debut novel, The Hunt for Red October, uh, in his spare time. Um, and did all the research um, in his spare time. This book came out in 1984. It was initially published by the Naval Institute Press. That's actually a nonprofit press. It's not a military press. Um, they they put out. But mostly, it sounds legit. It does. They put out mostly nonfiction, occasional fiction. They're they're a publishing company, but they specialize in this sort of stuff. In in the initial run, it sold 45,000 copies. Ronald Reagan read it and endorsed it. He called it like a darn good yarn. And that just that it blew up by 1988. It had sold over 4 million copies. So just wow, a trim- I'm surprised they haven't made a movie of it. <laughs> I'm surprised they haven't remade that the movie of it. Um, but uh, huh? yeah, uh, well, don't worry. Well, we're going to talk all about uh, the filmic potential of this book and uh, later on. But it was just tremendously popular. This is something I pulled. It was a Washington Post review from 1984. The critic Reed Beto wrote, quote, It may be the most satisfactory novel of a sea chase since C.S. Forrester perfected the form. Uh, C.S. Forrester famously being the author of the Horatio Hornblower series and, and uh, oh, I think like okay. the African Queen as well and, and some other very popular books. 17 of Clancy's novels made it to the top of the New York Times bestseller lists. Andrew... Basevich, who is a historian of U.S. foreign policy and international relations. He's also a retired army colonel and Vietnam vet. Uh, this is a quote from him. Quote, Clancy did for military pop lit what Starbucks did for the preparation of caffeinated beverages. He launched a sprawling, massively profitable industrial enterprise that simultaneously serves and cultivates an insatiable consumer base. Whether the item consumed provides much in terms of nourishment is utterly beside the point. That it tastes yummy going down more than suffices to keep customers coming back. End quote. Um, I thought there was a a little kind of shitty jab in there about like, you know, whether it's nourishing. It's like, oh, you you sound like you wish you wrote this book. Clancy made $97 million total on the various book deals and video games and movie deals he uh, signed off on. So pretty lucrative career as, a, as an author. 
Um, I didn't know that this was his breakout novel. I I, I didn't know this was his first. Yeah, interesting. Because yeah. it has, it, it, there are parts of it that would suggest that there's that the that the book Patriot Games came before it because there's reference to events that well, he, and like, you know he could have he could have started Patriot Games first and had like a bunch of notes for it down and then wrote this and then went back and finished Patriot Games. I'm sure there's something about that somewhere. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, and I know in the like timeline of the Jack Ryan stuff, I don't think this happens first. No, Patriot Games is first, and then there's like I think at this point because I haven't read the Jack Ryan books, you know, like I, I'm sure I'm sure there's like more prequels because he has a like a very short career in the Marines and all sorts of other stuff. So, you know, he's it's a character's got a big storyline. Um, the the initial the first edition by the Naval Institute Press, uh, the cover is pretty plain. You know, it's got a white background, Hunt for Red October. It's got the silhouette of a Typhoon class submarine with a sickle and hammer superimposed on it. I came across this really cool Collins 1985 UK edition. Yeah. I'm going to post on Instagram. I saw that. Yeah, post that. That looks like a – Is that that's the one that looks like almost like it's from Tron. Yeah, so it's just to describe yeah. it, it's this it, – it, the cover has got this neon blue vector grid, which is supposed to be the ocean surface, I think, and then this yellow uh, computer-generated – polygon contour map of the ocean floor with a red cg submarine moving through the center of it it's not even like it's not even a cg submarine it's just like a red outline of a submarine like all of the lines are 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 neon red like like i said it gives like a very tron vibe it's it's very much supposed to be like a high tech and quotation marks high tech computer readout of a submarine yeah for sure for sure and it's probably for the 1985 you know I tried to find an edition of that. I found some. I think I think the lowest was around like forty bucks, and I was like, eh, maybe I'll buy Oof. that my, my next paycheck. It'd be it would go on my you know featured bookshelf, but um, yeah, that'd yeah, be cool so, to have for that. So in terms of like my reading experience, I read a um, Berkeley uh, Books reprint of it, paperback, and I listened to. Much of it, um, not much. I, I I read most of it, but I listened to a good amount of it on audiobook, um, which was a, kind of a new experience for me because I I'm not a big audiobook um, user. I've used them before, but I have more to say about that. But uh, what was your this reading? Was, so so I audiobooked the whole thing, but I also read a um, nonfiction book that we're going to discuss as well. So I was kind of going back and forth between the nonfiction book and the audiobook. And I'm a very slow reader in terms of like physical reading. So it took me a while, but the audiobook uh, moves along at a good clip, partially because and I hope you, you had the same reader, but uh, it's read by Scott Brick who is, uh, he does, like, he reads all of the Clive Cussler books. He's the new uh, reader for the Lee Child books since uh, Dick Hill died, R.I.P. But, like, his voice and the voices that he does are always really fun. He does a good job with accents and keeping different characters distinct. Yeah, I think that that was who I listened to. Well, let me ask you, what what were your initial impressions of this book did you like it did you not like it i do like it it didn't wow me like i thought it was going to and a lot of it is 
a little more drawn out and a lot more detailed than I was expecting. And uh, parts of it that I was expecting to be more charming than they were are not as charming as I expected. Um, I am, I could imagine that it, they could chop a lot of this down and cast some really cool people and make a really good movie out of it. And I think that like a lot of the conclusion could be summed up a lot better that way. Because mm-hmm. the conclusion of the book like, like starts almost at the halfway point and goes on for like a bunch of the book. Yeah. There were some weak points to it. I think narratively where it, things happened a little too quick or, you know, uh, uh, well, just my initial impressions, obviously the book is highly technical. Clancy spends a lot of time describing the technology involved. I would say much of the page count is technical description. And I thought on the one hand, it was interesting to see how Tom Clancy used technical description and technical exposition as a narrative device Mm -hmm. and it was also interesting to see how dicey a proposition that can be from a narratological perspective he sometimes over explains things and i would feel myself losing interested interest and getting frustrated and being like okay so how does this relate to the story again um yep I think it's a combination of, 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 of there were a few scenes where I was just like, oh, my God, this is so tedious. And well, like also, I said, the, yeah. the stuff with like there's a good portion of the book that was getting kind of interesting. And then it completely deviates to new characters that have not been in the book for the whole book and are like I said, it's like a taxi cab spy intrigue thing that starts up in like that, like a halfway point of the book that comes out of nowhere and is interesting in parts. But I, the whole time I was like, is this relevant? Like yeah. what, what is this pertaining to? And then when it, they finally reveal what it is, it's like this long drawn out process to explain how they got one bit of information that they didn't even get to use because they didn't get the communique out quick enough. And also how they are controlling the, um, like exchange of certain information. And like, it's basically like spies catching other spies and then keeping them employed so that they can, uh, distribute like false information and stuff. Yeah. And like, is it almost feels like it would be like a cooler subject for a whole other book. And it comes out of nowhere in this one. And if you cut all of it out, it changes nothing about the main like plot. Well, it, that that little subplot you mentioned kind of has to do with we're saying Clancy covers all of his bases. That is to kind of tidy up one thing. But honestly, if that thing wasn't tidied up, it wouldn't have really stuck out to me as a reader. It wouldn't have been like a loose thread that like. Yeah. I, I if was you like, made this a movie, you could yeah. cut that whole thing out and it would be better. But to, speaking more to what you just said, I do think that's, in this book at least, Clancy's style is to overload you with information and kind of confuse you and be like, wait, where is this going? And then he's like, and it, and that, and that's because of this. And you're supposed well, to be like overwhelmed and some, or, or like uh, kind of entertained. And sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just like, oh my God. I, I would I just... almost <laughs> agree, but there are so many scenes that feel like they should be set up for some sort of a fun reveal or fun scene and they, they just kind of falls flat. Yeah. And Doesn't always um, work. there's also this did some stuff that we talked about in um, The Eagle Has Landed, which is it gives away too much too soon. 
Not definitely not as bad as the eagle has landed, which just tells you the ending right in the beginning. But um, this... let me t- well, uh, okay. We I have a lot to say about that, but that's because I'm reading the sequel to the eagle has landed. I know. We'll talk about that later. We'll okay. talk about that later. <laughs> but but this doesn't. It kind of reveals what Ramius is up to right away. Yeah. And doesn't leave anything to the imagination, doesn't leave anything to the... the it, I mean, the characters definitely talk about what they think is going on, but you as the reader already know what's going on. You know what his plans are, and you could have kept a lot of that back and a lot of it closer to the chest and revealed it in a different order and had the audience wondering what his intentions were. Is he a madman trying to go and start a war? Is he some sort of crazy mutineer? Is he defecting? Like, And they just tell you right away what it is. Yeah, Clancy's sense of drama is kind of strange and his priorities as, a, as an author, as the writer of this book, are also kind of strange in that he is he's he's less concerned with like the dramaturgy you know like chris Chris, like a lot less like a lot less i imagine like what you said is like all this stuff could be happening and then it could be like oh my god he wants to defect and then like he could have he could have strung the reader along for a third of the book thinking that there was about to be a nuclear war but then he could have revealed something but rather than do that he builds this giant kind of like network of characters and settings that he kind of lays everything out for you Um, yeah if you were if you were to make this into a movie you could very easily have had that information be like hinted at at the boardroom meeting when ryan is trying to like pitch what's going on to a bunch of suits You, you could definitely have it like hinted at and like like save the confirmation until they actually get kind of in communication with ramius yeah well, I feel like uh, this would be a good time to jump into the plot, but I also want to give a kind of very like quick, quick description of what this is, of what what happens in this book. Um, you have the main conflict, which involves Commander Marco Ramius of, of the Soviet Union and the uh, nuclear submarine Red October, which he is trying to defect to the United States with. Um, and inside that, there's so many smaller problems and conflicts like, you know, how can the Russians accommodate this defector and fend off the Soviets that are chasing him without starting a war? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting political situation that is. I mean, we'll we'll definitely talk about this a lot more in part two, but it's it's loosely based on true events. But I'm not even going to say true events because it's it's based on a lie, based on true events. And yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll dig into that much later, but it, during during all of the real-life political situation that inspired this, there is a lot of question on intentions and things, and what would happen if a defector reaches certain coasts and things, and mm-hmm. how your enemy can be manipulated for your own purposes and things like that. And they, they play a lot of that out in this book, which is kind of cool, where there's like a whole side plot between two politicians meeting up and talking about of, of the events and what the Russians lie is and how their lie changes throughout to try to influence the Americans into action. Yeah. Um, There's a, the, in addition to like the actual kind of military, the movement of the submarines and the, the friction between the various naval fleets, there's the whole intelligence and operation side, which has to do with people strategically secreting information to some people, sometimes secreting, uh, I just like saying secreting information, secreting yeah, misinformation. <laughs> I've like 
that, I, I feel like I've probably read that in a spy novel because that, that seems like the, that's, you know, I wouldn't normally use I mean, it's use got that. the word secret in it, but it also sounds like they're all toads. <laughs> but um, they are, they're leaking information and misinformation. That's not better. <laughs> there's, it is just a, uh, it's a, they're spraying it everywhere. It, it's all oh over the God. place. If you were to bring a black light into the room, there would be information everywhere. There's information all over the place. <laughs> all right. So let's get in, let's jump into the plot uh, summary. So. But yeah, but you're right though. Like a uh, like a, a part of this is uh, a naval chase. A part of this is a political procedural, like just full on political procedural. Then there's like whole other little side things going on, and it's kind of interesting how it all plays out. So yeah, let's uh lay it out for us. Uh, yeah. So the book jumps around quite a bit. Leak, leak this information to us. Yes. Just start secreting. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Here I go. Um, so the book jumps around quite a bit. I'm not going to recount the events in the precise order in which they appear in the book, but really my goal here is just to kind of present the coherent narrative. So I really I don't think you could no. if I challenged you right now to to lay them out in the correct order. I don't think you could. Yeah, yeah, that would uh, require a beautiful mind to do that. Um, so More like a weird yarn board of a conspiracy theorist. So I really liked the opening of this book, which is, um, and maybe it's because of the the movie and I associated the imagery. But the huh? book the book opens. You have this very vivid picture of the Red October moving through this icy fjord. It's surrounded by glaciers, and it's it's being taken out for its maiden voyage. And on the deck is Commander Marco Ramius. He is the Soviet captain of this ship that and he's taking as I said he's taking out for the first time he's accompanied by uh, Captain Borodine Captain Borodine is the second in command he's not the captain he's a captain rank but I'll just call him Borodine the he, the structures in Russian navy are very interesting and they are not at all like the American navy you have the captain who is not in command of the ship but has the rank of captain you have the commander of the ship who is above the captain and then you have a political officer exactly that is that is like if your political party was a religion he'd be the priest and Mm -hmm. like any actions have to be like ran by the political officer to make sure that they're in in line with the party and this is a direct i don't want to say direct result but it solves a big problem of submarine warfare during world war one in which in world war one germans would send out their submarines with a like a mission and you wouldn't hear from them because they didn't have radio and you couldn't contact them once they left port and so they were kind of free to do whatever they wanted and you had to trust that they were loyal and completing their mission and if they came across a situation that was unsure of what to do they got full freedom to make the decision and then return to port and deal with the ramifications of their actions so in the problems that could arise in that Russia decided that it would be cool to have basically a politician on board so that instead of having to run all of your orders back to command or having to wait for an answer, you'd have someone on board that could kind of make the decision for the political party. But they also serve in this instance, the way Clancy writes it, and the character's name is Ivan Putin, is as a sort of ideological representation of the Soviet Union on board. Yes. They are there there to make make everyone in line, uh, to politically prime people. I don't want to say brainwashing, but it's kind of like 
brainwashing. It's they represent a different kind of authority on board. They there's a yeah. we'll talk about this more later, but there you know, but on a ship there's trust between, you know, officers and the crew. Let's just put it this way, he's not the one you want to cross because he can bring down the full weight and authority of the formal, you know, military uh, justice system the or whatever. Government. Yeah, the whole government. You. Yeah. Yeah, if you if you cross the captain, you're, you know, confined to the brig. If you cross the political officer, your career's over. Well, we, let's not spend much time more time talking about him because he he's not in the story for very long. So What <laughs> what? So what happens is they, you know, this uh, Ivan Putin is, uh, he is a, um, he's kind of wormy. You know, he's not like the commander. He's not knowledgeable like the commander. He's kind of a landlubber. And, but he's, he's necessary to an extent. He joins the commander, Marco Ramius, downstairs in his office where they have to use uh, both of their keys to open up a time-locked safe to collect the orders for their mission. And the orders yeah, you're not, are... you're not necessarily privy to your orders until you're on yeah. the way. And that, that way you can't really tell anyone either. So, you know, it's Correct. Like this and is that's, a, uh, that's exactly the point is it's a control of information so that spies can't get a hold of it or you can't betray your country. So you don't get your orders until you're already underway and you open them with the political officer you both have to open them together you can't access the safe without both people and then you find out your orders and follow them to the letter and they're generally like displayed somewhere right right so uh the orders are to participate in this war game basically but after he reads the orders uh commander ramius kills the political officer he basically trips no it was an accident he snaps his neck and he throws some tea on the ground and calls the doctor and says hey look he slipped oh my god that's so bad the doctor says okay that's that's awful uh let's radio you know hq and at that point uh ramius says let's return to yeah let's return he says we can't listen i just read the orders and it's radio silence is part of the order no matter what we cannot use the radio so Let's just put him in the. Uh, let's just th- uh, store him with the uh, frozen just, food and uh, just pop him in the fridge and keep moving. Yeah, yeah, and we'll th- keep him for leftovers. So then, Ramius addresses the crew and explains the orders, not the orders they read. He makes what? he makes them up. What? I know. What? And at this point, you can tell obviously there's a subterfuge going here. And he tells them, "Hey, you know our mission. We are to sail to this secret." dock the secret port in havana cuba and the way they describe it it's actually a pretty great mission because everyone's excited about going to cuba it's going to be warm there's going to be girls they're going to drink rum it's going to be great and you get to pull one over on the imperialist nation of, of america they'll never know yeah and uh but at this point there's a character that's just briefly introduced the chef on board his ears kind of perk up at this and he just thinks uh, that's not our mission. I know what our mission is, and it's not that. Okay, this is interesting. Um, Connor, how would the chef know what the mission is? Good question. There's some foreshadowing that goes on in this because there's we'll a play it. Yeah, some, somebody trigger the theremin sound. Well, do, when they're first being towed out in the beginning in that opening scene, I mentioned the chef on the towboat waves waves to him. You know, one of the first characters we meet is actually a chef, like a you know nondescript mm-hmm. nameless chef. Um, I feel like I feel like that's about as much foreshadowing as Tom Clancy 
uh, is capable of. <laughs> Not that he's incapable. I'm surprised. Writer, they, like... I'm, su- I'm really surprised with the way the rest of the book plays out that we didn't get the whole like day in the life of that tug pilot. Oh God. Oh my God. Like you'd learn about his cousin and like, you know, like his father was like built tugboats. And We've like... got to set up that wave. Yeah. You got to yeah. know why he's there to wave. He always Anyways, go on. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> There's a, as we said, there's a lot of like technical descriptions, but in terms of what happens next, he's leaving Poliarni in Russia, and he's moving towards the east coast of the United States. The Soviet fleet that's waiting for him to show up, you know, to participate in the war game, they're like, oh, he's not here yet, and they're not initially that alarmed because they well, know that. And there's a good reason why, and it's because this sub is special. It is, but also they think that Ramius, who they his nickname is the schoolmaster because he's he's an extremely intelligent, qualified commander, and he also teaches people how to command subs. He's a sly fox. They're like, oh, maybe he's up to something interesting. So he has yeah. he has a little a little grace with the Soviet Navy. He is a kind of one of their favorite sons. And at this time, we also learned that prior to setting sail with the Red October, he had mailed a letter to the Soviet high command, the head of the Soviet Navy, telling him what he intended to do, which is to take the Red October, defect to the United States, and hand over the Red October to the Americans. And he sends this letter for a few different reasons. Uh, at one point, he says that, you know, if, if the, I know the letter's sent, so there's no backing out of it now. But also, he has a grudge against the Soviet Union, and sending that letter, letting them know exactly what he wants to do, is a way to add insult to injury. He sends it to this Admiral Yuri Padorin, and the letter is actually delayed a day, and this is a great example of one of these, like, throwaway characters and sort of technical descriptions that that I think in this instance was kind of interesting. So the letter gets sent to a post office, and you hear this little story, basically the little life story of this mail carrier there, this postal worker there, who... Um, was this grumpy old Soviet guy who fought in World yeah. War II. He, he fought on a tank in World War II and is like a drunk. And he's just like this angry old, you know, uh, veteran. And he hates submariners because he thinks they're like little princes. And, you know, they send their letters and they come on, you know, onto shore and all the girls like them. Oh, God, it wasn't like that when I was their age. And, you know, he's drunk and pissed off and he wants to go to this hockey match. And he kind of just like tosses the letter aside. So it gets delayed a day. Um, and I don't know, I kind of liked that scene, but it is an example of something like... You could, you could absolutely cut that out, though, and just have, like, I don't know, like, again, if it was made into a movie, you could just have, like, the political person that the letter was sent to be walking into his office and have it handed to him, and then read it, and then maybe, I don't know, like, overreact, spill some coffee, it would be a scene, like, you wouldn't need to do all this other lead-up. No, you, you, yeah, it, we probably didn't need to know that much about the guy, but you know, I liked that. I thought, which he was is kind why of... I'm surprised we didn't learn about the tug pilot. Well, he he was quirky. You know what I mean? Like it, the, the idea of like an angry Soviet. But that's the worker. thing. That's, that's that's the thing. All of the stuff that's unnecessary is not hateable because that whole thing that I feel is unnecessary with the cat taxi cab espionage is interesting, and I like the characters. I just don't feel like they belong in this book. So uh, around this point, uh, we get uh, basically we get Marco Ramius's uh, biography, and we learn that he is from Lithuania, 
in the 1940s, when he was a, a boy, the Soviet government had o- occupied Lithuania, and his father basically joined the invading Soviet forces and aided them in their occupation of his home country, for which he was awarded and achieved a pretty respectable reputation in the Soviet Union, and uh, he had some association with the Soviet uh, Politburo. Uh, his Russian mother died during childbirth. Marco was her only child, and he was brought up by his grandmother, Hilda, who was a devout Roman Catholic. I thought this was a very interesting character trait. Uh, So he's brought up and raised Roman Catholic. There's a point where it talks about how he is not super like Catholic. He does not like buy into the tenets of Catholicism very much, but he hates the idea that that Marxism and Leninism would take the place of religion in Soviet society. He calls Marxism, Leninism, the uh, Soviet state religion. You know, because of that, he kind of rebelliously considers himself religious because he doesn't want someone else, you know, telling him what he should believe. Um, You know, Marxism, Leninism is in a religion, but its authority and ideology supersedes religion, supersedes Catholicism. It's it's something that he and the real life figure he's based on have in common. So he gets married later on in life and his wife dies. She she uh, has, I believe, like appendicitis and she's operated on by this drunk surgeon. And, you know, he messes up. He nicks an artery. All this awful stuff happens. The surgeon basically just gets away with it. There's no punishment. He blames the Soviet state for this because it is sort of the the institution of, you know, uh, state hospitals and state government and um, that has kind of created this society where these things happen. And he remarks, too, that he couldn't even mourn. He couldn't even use the salve of religion to comfort himself after his wife's death. The death of his wife is cited as the primary reason why he wants to take revenge on the Soviets. And this is a little bit different than the the movie with uh, Sean Connery and Alec Baldwin, where I think what? there's more emphasis. <laughs> you know there is a movie. It's not <laughs> there's, what movie? Um, uh, uh, U571. Never, never mind. <laughs> um, that was a cool movie. I liked that when it came out when I was a kid. Um, so... Uh, in the movie, why would you cast why would you cast Sean Connery in a movie about Russians? Good question. Um, I'll I'll talk about that more. All right. So at this point, cut to Jack Ryan. All right, the CIA intelligence analyst. Um, we get his background kind of up front. Uh, we we meet him. He is talking to Admiral Greer, who is the deputy director of intelligence for the CIA. We learn that uh, Jack Ryan is American. Uh, he has a background working in finance. He has an educational background in history and economics. Um, when we meet him, he's functioning as the CIA liaison to British Secret Intelligence Service, a.k.a. MI6. Which is a really interesting position to be. Like, you're kind of, like, between intelligence agencies. But you're also not, like, a full-fledged agent. Yeah, well, he's, he's, a, he's a liaison. But he, like, he's, in, yeah. he's an analyst, yeah. too. He's not really, like, an operative. Um, yeah. He has several children and a wife. They're all living in London. Um, he's in the United States. Like he's traveled there very quickly to talk to Admiral Greer. Um, we also learned that he was a he was a he's a former Marine. He was only three months on the job when he was injured in a helicopter crash. We when we meet him, it seems like Admiral Greer and Jack Ryan are close pals. 
Um, you know, they, they're very chummy with each other. There's almost like a father-son relationship I, I, I observe there, you know, where, where yeah. Greer is the sort of elder, you know, um, uh, mentor. There's reference to a terrorist threat that Ryan had thwarted some years back. This is uh, that terrorist threat is actually the basis for the novel Patriot Games. It, it gives Ryan some like credentials. You know, he's not he's good in the cut. You know, he know he's he's smart, but he knows how to react. Um, and Ryan, when he has photographs of the Red October, he's got them from the British. The British have a spy working in the dock in Polyarni, and they've taken pictures of it. And Ryan has done some trading with his British uh, counterparts, and he's collect he's gotten these pictures, um, and he's looking at them with Admiral Greer, and they look pretty standard, except for a few things. These four doors on them, uh, two forward and two aft, they're these little kind of shutters uh, near the bottom of the hull. Greer and Ryan are wondering what they could be. Ryan, yeah, they throw out some ideas, but Ryan thinks he he may know, but also he may know some of that may know better. Yeah, he wants to double check his work, triple check his work. He thinks they may be a some sort of silent propulsion drive, and he asks Greer, "Can I take this to an expert? And do I have you know permission to share these photos with someone?" And Greer tells him, "Yeah, just be very careful. You know, let's keep this. You know, mum's the word still." And this is kind of interesting because uh, this allows uh, Ryan to kind of circumnavigate the bureaucracy of contractors and consultants in uh, the intelligence industry. Like normally, he would have to, you know, maybe put a bid out and get bids for you know analysis mm-hmm. and consulting work, but instead. He goes to this guy, Skip Tyler, who is an instructor at the Naval Institute and an engineer. And Skip Tyler, we learn, he does consulting work for the U.S. Navy. I believe he's a former naval officer. He's not, like, currently in the Navy at that point. Correct. Um, He's involved with the Navy, but he doesn't hold any rank or anything, from what I understand. Right. And he he was uh, supposed to have a very promising career and then got injured. Right. He lost his leg. He was in a car accident involving a drunk driver and he lost his leg. So he's, you know, he's got a good attitude. He's like, Paul, he's not, you know, but he, he's, he's a tragic kind of character. And, uh, basically they talk to each other and Skip Tyler agrees with Ryan and provides some more technical, uh, technical, you know, background and says, yeah, this looks like a caterpillar drive. Uh, this is something the U.S. Navy has actually tried to create for some time, but we've had some problems. And basically what a Caterpillar drive is, is a silent propulsion system that involves hydro propulsion. In this case, it, it, later on, we kind of learn it's magneto hydro propulsion. So it uses magnets to push water through a tunnel and basically create a uh, sort of, uh, whereas you would have screw, like a screw it's, and it, propellers on a, on a submarine, this uses water to create that effect. It's kind of like a turbine in the water instead of for like jet propulsion. Um, but it's all inside and encased and uses, you know, fluid dynamics. And like you said, uh, magnets, how do they work? Um, to kind of like make this whole thing function in a way that can't be picked up by uh listening equipment yeah then uh, this is the character that um 
Well, let me just finish up. So he, you know, he asked, can I hold on to these pictures? I also want to access this computer at the Pentagon and run some tests and like some simulations um, to to work out the size of this of this of the Red October and see exactly if this would work. And uh, Ryan says yes. And as we said, Skip Tyler is the character that it seems kind of like Clancy put a lot of himself into in that he's very intelligent. He's kind of understated, but he was denied a career that he presumably would have been incredible at because of uh, something that was completely out of his hands. A physical so, setback. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's this character yeah. I would describe him as having a lot of, of a lot of dignity, a very dignified character, you know, uh, likable and intelligent. Um, so, in addition to the British photographs, there's there's a lot of other intelligence that's gone over. Um, there's a mention of this Soviet spy uh, that has a, a code name Cardinal, and in particular, he provides the CIA with a communique from the Soviet Union. And he's a, he is in the Soviet Union, so he's he is a Soviet working for the Americans. Um, but he provides them a communique where the Soviet Northern Fleet has been directed to locate and, if necessary, sink the Red October. And this is one of the things that clues Ryan in as to what might be happening with the Red October. So at this point, the CIA knows that the Red October is out of port. It's in the sea. And that it's doing something very unusual. Like I said, there's mm-hmm. a lot of intelligence and collection and analysis that goes on after this. Really, I would say the first quarter to one third of the book is a lot of techno babble and paperwork and back and forth. Not to say it's all entirely boring, but it's just a lot of information that's be- being gathered. It's a lot to keep track of. We meet a lot of characters, mm-hmm. some of them minor, some of them important. But this is all to kind of set up the scenario that Jack Ryan is going to be tasked with handling um just as a side note here this being one of the few times i've used you know an audiobook i found it very difficult to keep track of things just by listening to it ultimately it wasn't that important because like i said this is all kind of set up but it was hard to keep track of characters and all the information going on i, I feel like i would have had a better grip on it if i was reading it in my hands but that, well, yeah, when you're reading it, you can flip back to things. You can reread things very easily where with an audiobook, you have to like open it and click on something to like go back 30 seconds. And uh, you can do there are ways to do like timestamps and like bookmark things, but it's tricky. And yeah, there are setbacks and drawbacks to audiobooking. Yeah, well, so but ultimately Ryan builds a pretty good case for what he thinks is happening, which is that this is a silent drive system. Ramius is defecting and he's coming to the United States. And uh, the CIA director tells him that he's going to be briefing the president. And he has like 90 minutes basically to get his presentation together. And this is, um, you know, you sh- if you want to read the book, you should read it. But chapter six, and it's also like the chapters are like days. It's like day one, day two, day three, chapter six slash day six. Um, you get this pretty tidy summary of the facts that he delivers to the president. And I think this should be a checklist item. Uh, We've kind of talked about this before where authors recap all of the sort of dense information thus far and give it back to you, the reader, to say, okay, this is where we're at. All right, got it. Let's let's move forward. forward. It's like a mile marker. uh, Recap presented within plot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And in this case, it's a 
briefing he gives to the president. And the president, another checklist item, you know, uh, we'll agree- go over that later. <laughs> agrees with Ryan. He's like, all right, that seems pretty reasonable. Uh, what do you think we should do? And you know, it happens multiple times in the book where Ryan's like, well, listen, it's it's not my job to say what you should do or shouldn't do, but I think uh, I think we should go for it. You know, let's try and get that sub here and and take it and collect it. The intelligence we would gather, it would be incredible. And the president says, you know what? I think you're right. I want you to do it. And that kind of, um, that's a good point to, to, to where things really change in the book. And this is where, for me, the book got a lot better because things get operational now and then people start moving. They get out of their offices. So Ryan goes to the USS Kennedy aircraft carrier and then onto the British carrier, the HMS Invincible, which are the nearest aircraft carriers to the East Coast at the time. Um, to talk to their commanders and let them know what's going on. He's going to need the help of the U.S. Navy and the British Navy if he wants to get the Red October to the United States. He needs. Hey, that should be printed on the back of the book. Jack Ryan's going to need the help of the British Navy and the American Navy if he's going to get... Yeah. (laughs) But part of what we... The challenge of this for Ryan is that he... He can tell only a few people about this. He wants to keep it like that. He wants very few people to know what's actually going on. So he well, needs to commander. Well, and you can see within the like plot of the book why. It shows how information moves about and like how easily some of that stuff can get passed around. Yeah, for sure. This And this is kind of the challenge. And it's one of the reasons I think they send Ryan is they're like, you know, he's kind of charismatic and likable. You know, people trust him. They'll, you know, it's he's he's a good man to go around and like be reliable and keep things, you know, uh, high and tight, but to also be good on his feet. So he needs these the U.S. and the U.K.'s fleets to basically they're going to have to run interference at times to keep the Soviet fleet off the Red October's butt. But he needs them. He's like, you know, the Soviet fleet's going to be here. I don't want you to start a war, though, but like there's going to be some friction. But let's be very careful about what we do here um, because we have a goal. And there's actually a cool scene here where he's a he flies in a Harrier jet, which is, you know, has that um, ability to like elevate and, you know, descend vertical takeoff and landing. Yeah. Yeah. And he chats with the the British pilot who's this like you know, very charismatic, like British guy who they talk about like hunting duck and stuff and, you know, just totally kind of chill guy. I I think, you know, we need to have like charismatic pilot as a checklist item because I don't know, we're coming across enough like kind of cool pilot characters. Anyways, so we jump, we jump again onto the USS Dallas, which is a, a US Navy submarine. And this sonar operator jonesy he he has been tracking this odd sonar signature that they picked up on and he figures out basically you know this isn't like anything we've heard before he he records it he studies it and he basically comes to the same conclusion as skip tyler he's like this is a caterpillar drive this is a soviet sub and i think this is like a silent propulsion drive Captain Mancuso, the captain of the Dallas, agrees. Bart Mancuso. Yeah. That's a cool name. He's one, he's one guy. I, I liked him in this. Uh, I want to talk about the leadership style of the captains later after we get through the summary. But he agrees. He actually promotes Jonesy 
and like gives him like you know yep. gives him it, it, you know he he rewards excellence on his boat and he gets permission to look for this submarine at that point it's it's already past them you know like they they hear the thing and then like two days later they kind of figure out exactly what it was and they're actually located i thought this was kind of interesting they're located in this area in the north atlantic that is this very rocky topography that the soviets have somehow figured out a way to chart so it's a place where the soviets can lose people that are following them because they can go into this very like mountainous uh, area and speed through it and the u.s and the british uh, subs kind of have to tiptoe through there because they're not as familiar with it well so um, so the way it works is that the americans and british have to use their instruments and react in real time and the russians have mapped it all out uh, like excessively to like a ridiculous detail and have done timing drills to know exactly at like stopwatch times when to make their turns and at what degrees so they can do all that stuff like a machine and not have to worry about like getting inf- information fed back through them through their instruments and react in real time yeah it's a uh, it's a real challenge for the it, for the US and the UK to um it's well basically it's just a, it's a weak spot for them they Yep. That it's where they lose this. They have difficulty tracking the submarines. Mancuso gets permission to look for the Red October. He doesn't know it's the Red October. He just knows it's a Soviet sub, and he tells his men, "Like, listen, rest up. We got, you know, we we got to cover some ground if we're going to reach where we think it might be. So everyone, rest up because once we find that thing, it is going to be like uh, it's going to be a bear of a time. You know, you might not sleep for for several days." Meanwhile, on board the Red October, Commander Ramius, with the help of his second-in-command, uh, Borodin, they continue to execute their defection operation. Borodin uh, collects the uh, radiation badges of the crew, to, and he has the doctor inspect them. And the doctor sees that there's a, you know, he sees marks of radiation on their badges. Uh, it becomes clear there's a radiation leak somewhere on the ship. It's hard to tell where it is. They have some trouble. Eventually, they locate it. And this is like one of those super tedious, tedious parts for me where you learn about like the threading on this pipe. And it's like several paragraphs about like the threading on a pipe and how someone drilled it like exactly precisely in the way they drilled it. And I was just like, oh, my God, you've got to be kidding me. But basically, someone has sabotaged. Uh, one, it's uh, not enough. It's not enough for a technician character to say someone sabotaged this. Clancy has to explain to you the information that they use to come to that conclusion. Yeah. So it, you can't go. Well, how do they know it's sabotage? I th- honestly thought that the sabotage at this point was just Borodin like swapping out the radiation badges for you know um, radioactive ones. This is. This is something that's done really well that they – it's one of the things that they don't tip their hand on is how much of the sabotage aboard Red October is the, like, lying that the officers are doing to set up their defection yeah. and how much of it is the actual work of a saboteur because both are going on. Yeah, and, and we should clarify at this point it's established that – Ramius and Borodin are defecting, and so are all the other officers, because the officers were handpicked 
by Ramius, the crew is very inexperienced. And they talk a bit about this, about the, the Soviet well, uh, crews. Yeah, I learned a lot more of it in reading up on this. It's interesting that, like, it's kind of like a classist thing. Like, if you are, if you can afford going to officer school and get, a, like, a good education, you're, you can, like, learn a lot more about what's going on on the sub. If you're a lowly crewman, you are told just enough, you know, just enough. And again, it's this control of information. It's almost like a need to know basis kind of a thing. And when you're a high ranking officer, you can kind of like, you learn how to do multiple things on the ship, and especially the political officers, the political officers double as technicians in certain situations. Because you don't, when, when you're in like crisis situation, you don't need the political officer to be a politician. You need him at a, a, a commander at a, you know, station. So it's it's interesting that the or it's not rather it's not interesting it's once you know how the political structure works it makes sense why only certain officers are let in on Ramius's plan and why the rest are uh, left in the dark and are still they still play a part in his plan but they are a little bit of an obstacle they they have to be you know fooled and played yeah well the 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 inexperience but of the crew I, saying saying they. Saying they have to be fooled and played, though, sounds, like, more malicious than he is. Like, he cares about the crew, even the ones that are not in on his plan. And he wants them handled well. He doesn't want to kill them. He doesn't want to leave them in a bad situation. Well, part of the concern of this operation by the president and other people is, like, do we even have, like, legal authority to take that ship? Another concern is, like, okay, the CIA can handle... The officers and the you know commander there's a lot of information we could get from them but what do you want us to do with the crew like we can't just kill them they they talk about that and they're like we consider right. it they talk about everything that you as a person that doesn't know anything about the situation would have questions about and like especially in the day and age where the cia does shady fucking shit you'd be like oh yeah they'll just kill all of them and they yeah. talk about that that's not really an option or you know they consider or whatever yeah and they talk about how if they get the sub, they can't keep the sub because the crew's going to go back and tell them that they have the sub. Yeah. And so what do we do with the crew? Because the crew's going to tell on us. Yeah. So we can get the sub, but then we're going to have to give it back. And they're like, well, maybe that's enough. Maybe we could just take enough pictures and get enough information in the little bit of time that we have with it. And a lot of the procedural part of the book is them trying to figure out a way to have their yeah. cake and eat it too, a yeah. way to keep the sub, but also send all the crew back. Yeah, I'll get to that in just a second because that is a, a very important part uh, is the plan that they come up with. So, but basically, yeah. meanwhile, as the subterfuge is going on and the defection is hap is they're they're trying to you know get to the eastern seaboard the soviet fleet moves in on the eastern seaboard positions itself there is basically a blockade there's some friction between the soviets and the u.s and the uk uh there's a dog fight that yo, happens yo russia why are you putting all of your assets there yeah there's a there's what a... are you doing i know that's the thing are you is making it... a play on us well, they have to make it like there's there's uh, scenes between the Soviet ambassador and the president. And there's like, you know, the, the president knows what's going on, but he doesn't want the ambassador to know he knows what's yeah. going on. So yeah. this is, a, a you know, in uh, the Soviet ambassador ends up saying something like, oh, well, you know, we, we think one of our ships sunk there. And that's why all of our people are there. We're trying to collect, you know, a sub. And, you know, and of course, the the American ambassador is like, 
Oh, that's too bad. Do you want help? Yeah, we we should help you. Oh my god, we can we can help you. And then the Soviets and, like, and no, 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 guys no, like, I think it's we're okay. doing everything. I think I think we're doing everything that we can. Yeah. Both sides are trying not to start a war, but both sides have to kind of explain themselves and, yeah. or act in a way that they aren't found out. And so, uh, so yeah. you, you can't just tell the U.S., hey, we've got a secret piece of technology headed your way and we want to you know, make sure it doesn't reach you. They can't yeah. just say that. So they have to come up with all sorts of cover stories. But and the yeah, what? But what? But I do want to say, so in all this tension, something interesting does happen that kind of impacts the whole cover story thing. They actually do lose a submarine on the East Coast. There's this uh, attack submarine that basically overheats its nuclear Yeah, nuclear they push reactor. themselves too far, too hard, push the reactor a little too hard. And this is this is an example, too, where you like learn about the piping in the core and how this one thing you know, uh, dislodges and falls down the pipe and blocks it. And that causes all this pressure and et cetera, et cetera. And it's a pretty I great scene. I kind of liked that part. It's, it's very interesting. And the visuals of like the disaster playing out are just garish to imagine. <laughs> oh, this is a to me, this is what I mean. And a good example of like technological exposition as a dramatic device, because it is dramatic. You hear, like you learn all about mm-hmm. this, like, this coolant system and this one kind of like it's not a gasket but it's like this one piece of it that they refitted and then this happened it's like it's that in that case it's like watching a rude goldberg machine where at the end a nuclear reactor melts down and this guy's dead now like super instantly dead yeah so the 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 attack sub as the core is melting down it tries to surface it does an emergency surface but, and it, it makes it out of the – I think it almost makes it out of the water. But then the core itself like dislodges and like starts like tumbling through the ship and bur- like like burning through the ship. That just melts. Yeah. Like, melts it, right through ship. Yeah. And, it, and it, the, the sub sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And, um, but not before one person escapes and it is the chef on board that attack sub who escapes. Again third chef we're meeting in this story and that's important because the soviets don't know which sub sank and they only know that there's a chef who escaped and they're like well holy shit that chef on the red october is actually a gru agent he's he's a military intelligence spy on board that ship if he's which is foreshadowing which is what foreshadowing yeah and but they're like we need to talk to that chef and get the and figure out what's going on because he's in a position to verify if if the red october is defecting yeah and what's cool is he's not in russian hands the people that are nearby and that kind of witness this is like a like a helicopter that's flying back from somewhere and uh like witness what what goes down they don't witness the whole thing because it's you know it's underwater but they witness what kind of goes down and they see a guy in the water and are able to like get him out this is kind of like a side plot that happens but it's the thing is is that all the side plots are kind of like integral to the main plot and that they're like details that help accomplish the the main plot but anyway so that all that happens the Dallas continues to look for the Red October. They finally pick up its signal about 600 miles off the coast of the Carolinas. We learn that it's that uh, Commander Ramius is going for uh, uh, Norfolk, Virginia. 
Um, around the same time, Ryan is aboard the HMS Invincible, the uh, British uh, aircraft carrier. And by this time, again, the Soviet has all the barricades. Um, the USS Dallas gets orders from the HMS Invincible to ping the Red October, which also gives away the Dallas's position. And the Red October pings it back. Pinging out, pinging is sending out a loud sonar sound, basically. It is a way to locate, to show the location of something, but it also shows And your, verified distance. It, it also verifies distance, but it is it reveals basically your shouting. Yeah, and it lo- yeah. exactly. It reveals your location, too. And by doing this, they basically confirm that the Red October is defecting. They exchange like a message uh, via like Morse code. The Red October surfaces and they use these like lights on board the Invincible to, to send it a Morse code message saying like, hey, we know you're trying to defect. The Soviet fleet is on your tail and, you know, be careful. So all while this is happening... Skip Taylor, the 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 uh, engineer and kind of uh, Tom Clancy stand-in, he is at the Pentagon using this supercomputer to basically model the Caterpillar Drive uh, system, and this kind of speaks to how dated like this put, uh, this book is. I was gonna say, I think we should put supercomputer in parentheses here. Well, I want to uh, add that to <laughs> the right, checklist. Quotation marks. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bit later where there's a discussion about computer technology that I want to touch on. Oh, I think um, I know exactly which one you're talking oh, about. Oh, yeah, no, I've written down quite a bit about it. So he's he's using it, and he basically is able to model the Soviet silent drive system. While he's at the Pentagon, he, he bumps into a few of his old friends. A few secrets are divulged, and he's able to put together, he can put together two and two, and ends up speaking to Admiral Greer and is like, hey, listen, between what my friend told me and what Ryan showed me, is the Red October trying to defect to the United States? And Greer's like, you know, he's pissed. He's like, who told you that? And yeah, he's he, like, he's like, you didn't hear anything. Yeah, I mean, Skip Taylor kind of, he Sherlock Holmes is the whole situation, basically. But he comes up with a plan. He's like, I think I know how we can do this. And without letting the Soviets know we did it. And we can do it without killing the crew, too. Like, he has a, a, a plan that will address all of the concerns that the CIA and the president have. So a few things. Speaking about their concerns, like we said, they worry that they, they might not be legally entitled to hold on to the ship. They worry about what to do with the crew. But Skip's plan, and we don't learn this all at once, this is kind of revealed, you know, a little bit more dramatically, is to essentially take a U.S. boat, an old one, an old submarine, and blow it up in the area of the Red October so the Soviets will think that the Red October has exploded. That way they won't come looking for it and they won't know that the Americans have it. But before they do that, they need to say that there's a problem with the nuclear reactor and they need to evacuate all the crew off the ship. That way the crew can confirm that the commander intends to scuttle the ship, basically. So basically they're going to yeah. swap out the ship for something else. That way um, they don't have to, like I said, they don't have to kill anyone. Well, it's also, it's a way to get the crew off of the ship too, because no one wants to be about around radiation. Right, right. And the crew can verify, you know, the captain will say he's going to scuttle the ship so the Americans don't get it. And he plans to kind of execute this by having some Russian-speaking CIA agents get on board 
the Red October and to kind of make this happen, you know? More importantly, he has the way to do it. Right. He has... Are you referring to the DSRV? Yes, I am. The Deep Submergence Rescue Vehicle, which is a... Yeah. Which is uh, used for... This is an interesting thing, too. It's used to look at the attack submarine that had overheated its core. That This little kind of uh, scout submarine. You know, it's like a little... It's a little submarine people can jet around in, and it fits a, you know... Yeah, it's a little science... It's like a science submarine. Yeah. Uh, everyone kind of knows what we're talking about, in yeah. a way, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah. uh, these are outfitted with, a like, a collar that lets them dock with submarines, so you can go to and from. You can, you can while they're in service, you can, like, board a submarine or get off of the submarine and onto the DSRV. Kind of like a Ramora. Yeah. So on board the Red October, the radiation leak, uh, they're they're unable to fix it. They're running out of battery power for the engines. The captain's like, listen, the Red October as as a ship is done. You know, he's he he's he's reaching the final part of his of his plan here. He's going to evacuate the crew. He's going to basically do what Skip Taylor had in mind. Tyler. Tyler. Skip Tyler. Whatever. Uh, I have Taylor written on my my notes here. Anyways. I guess maybe they go over this, but looking at my notes, like maybe they don't. Did Ramius just coincidentally like was there a part I missed where Tyler's plan was communicated to Ramius? No, he already had the kind of the same plan because he also needed to get the majority of the crew off of the ship. Right. It just so happens that Tyler came up with a plan that was identical to Ramius's. Yeah, yeah. It's probably like the biggest coincidence in the book. Yeah. Okay. So anyways, uh, Ryan has to be the guy to make this happen now. And he does. Basically, he gets on the... Uh, Spoilers. The, the DSRV. He brings a, um, a Russian-speaking British sailor with him. And they evacuate the crew. And the uh, captain, before the crew evacuates, the captain says, I'm going to scuttle this ship so the Americans don't get it. And that's what they think happens. Uh, but instead, the Americans I love blow the little up. scene. Yeah. I love I love the little scene where they have the, the British officers be like, all right, everyone that can speak Russian on the ships, come come to this room. And they line them up and they go, all right, this is what we're going to do. None of you are allowed to talk about it. Who volunteers? And like the people are like excited to do it. It's it's kind of fun. I like that little chapter. Well, one cool thing they do is is when they get on the Red October, they take a um a little like a it's like a compass or a gauge with the like sub serial number basically on it, and they end up planting that in the wreckage of the. It's so smart. Yeah, it's it's a way to verify that the wreckage is that they fake is in fact supposed to be the red october so they take it's like a pressure gauge dial yeah and they take that off and uh, they get a little bit of luck in this too later but yeah so anyways uh, you know there are these four cia agents that are supposed to do this mission their helicopter crashes ryan has to step in and do it he does he meets ramius they kind of like each other i guess but uh, after they evacuate everyone the cook is still on board the ship, the GRU agent, and he shoots at a bunch of people. He uh, unfortunately kills that British Russian speaking uh, uh, sailor, and he almost blows up one of the missiles, which he's trained to do if, if in instances like this. 
So Ryan tracks him down and is able to shoot and kill him. They recover the ship. Yeah. It's he takes his shoes off so he can be quieter, which is smart. Yeah. But then also Captain Ramius sees that and it's like that's a good idea and takes his shoes off and makes a noise because he fucks it up and gets winged. Uh, it kind of shows that Jack isn't just a pencil pusher. He isn't just an analytic guy. He was like, a he marine. Actually has a little bit of teeth, teeth yeah. on him. Yeah. Chris, so I, there's like a, a fun little sh- fun little shootout that you get. I gotta take a break. All right, I'll be back in just a minute. Okay. Oh boy, Please. everybody, it's time to take a break Stop for Deadlit. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Welcome back from those wonderful ads. Buy that product or service. Okay. Make it worthwhile that I had to sit here while Connor was off doing who knows what. For an amount of time that you listeners will never know. Anyways, where were we? Uh, You were were secreting some information. I feel like I kind of rushed. You were off leaking. I was secreting. I was secreting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel like I kind of rushed through the end there, but the ending is it's not anticlimactic. You haven't even you haven't even reached the end. You've reached the beginning of the ending. I know. I was going to say the ridiculous thing about this book is that the ending begins so far into the book. There's 70 pages left at this point. 70 pages. Yeah. And you think it's kind of over. Like it's like the defection has been a success. The the sub is in the American hands. Yeah. They've they've solved the agent that's on board and uh, they even deal with the like he's like been in the process of sabotaging a missile and they don't know what he's done and so they don't know really what to do so like ryan just starts ripping wires out it's ridiculous let's just like just yeah just rip all of this shit out of this thing and mess up the circuit boards and mess up the the functions of this and then they're like uh, he, he goes over to ramius he's like so we should probably like just jettison that right and ramius is like yeah totally <laughs> yeah yeah and so they do they they jettison it and it's one of those moments where like when it when they jettison it everyone that's around gets like a like notice that they're flooding a tube and that they're doing something and they're like they're launching a rocket oh my god what's going on and it doesn't do anything it just comes out of the sub and just kind of floats and then sinks to the bottom and that actually helps them out later because when they are bringing people down to look at the wreckage of the fake sub that they scuttled that they're saying is the red october they have not just the serial number on the dial that they planted but they also have this whole ballistic missile that they show that definitely wasn't launched it definitely just survived an explosion of a submarine yeah so um before we get to the very ending there's been there's there's like i said there's a lot of intelligence and ops and stuff and there's like you know president's aides and generals doing all this stuff to accommodate all the activity and to maintain the secrecy because really the big thing is is the americans don't want the soviets to know what they're doing part of that 
as Chris mentioned, has to do with this senator. So there's mention of this senator who's on the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee. And the CIA doesn't like this guy because basically everything they tell him ends up in, in the hands of the Russians. So they think that he is leaking or someone on his staff is leaking. So he goes to uh, the CIA. And he goes to Admiral Greer. He's like, listen, you know, there's all these. So I hear news about all these Soviet ships off the East Coast. Like, what's going on? You need to you need to tell me. I, and I have a right to know. And they feed him bad intelligence. They're like, well, I think you know, there's like a, I forget exactly what they tell him, but he they tell him doesn't matter because he tells his, one of his aides, and one of his aides in some fun taxi cab espionage. Yeah, one of his aides starts to tell this taxi driver, and you learn that they're actually Soviet spies, and that you know it's this intelligence tactic of like, you want to know who the mole is. Feed everyone a different piece of information and see what comes out the other side. That's how you find out who's who's leaking. And basically, they find out that this aide is leaking, is basically a Soviet spy. And they're like, you know, we knew that was the case, but we need to use him now. So, Senator, we'll forget this ever happened, but you need to, like, get out of here, get out of our hair, and let us work with him to feed information backdoor information to the russians that is that is false disinformation he is going to be our disinformation agent now and they use him to to sustain the illusion that they are not helping marco ramius defect that's you know one of the subplot elements of this so as i said we got 70 pages left you think you know okay they got the ship yeah so let's let's have a fun nice slice of life submarine meet and greet folks this episode actually went longer than expected uh, or rather i guess we should have expected it so instead of a two-parter this is in fact going to be a three-parter to keep the episode time down for you all i hope you all enjoyed part one of part one and hope you tune in to part two of part one to continue with our little slice of life meet and greet between the crews and the conclusion of our synopsis to Hunt for Red October, as well as our grading of this book and our cast-off segment. As always, you can reach out to us at dadlitpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at dadlitpodcast. Dad you later! parlance i believe i was hitting the head spraying it everywhere it's all over the place get out of here don't ask questions